Well, I do appreciate that Pastor Matt <clears throat> made sure that the age range was clear for our men's breakfast because I didn't want Ed Raff to feel left out. Um, and uh, that's right, brother. I'm thinking about you this morning. I want to make sure you're listening. I want to talk to you this morning about leaving room for love. Um, as I've been thinking about this idea as I prepared to teach this morning, I couldn't help but think about how timely and applicable this is to our season of life. Uh, when I say leave room for love, there may be a couple of different ideas that come to your mind. One of them might be, for instance, marriage. Uh, an example here might be that uh, some marriages become so wrapped up in the business of raising their kids, uh, keeping a home, maintaining a home, that their love for one another ends up getting set on the back burner. And, and if it's left unattended, in, in some cases, that love will actually die out. Uh, another example might be from our society. I saw a post the other day uh, on social media where a guy was holding up a sign and it said something like, mask or no mask, vax or no vax, I still love you. And, and, and then you got to see the responses of people as they, as they came into contact with him. And I got to tell you, it was very divided. And there were some people that said he was stupid, that he was an idiot, that he was a fool. And there were some people that went up and gave him a great big hug and said, thank you so much. I needed to hear that. Another example from our society might uh, be any kind of divide that exists right now. Think about politics. We won't talk about it. We'll just think about it. Uh, but so divided these days uh, to the point that, that people on either side of an issue have everything but love for the other. The idea of leaving room for love is, is what we're going to look at in our first message from a series that we're going to begin together this morning. Uh, we're going to take the next seven weeks together, uh, leading us almost to the doorstep of the beginning of our Advent season, and we're going to look what is commonly referred to as the seven letters to the churches that we find in chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. But for starters, they aren't really letters, okay? <laughs> we, we often call them letters. They're messages. They're more sermons than they are letters. They're a short little teaching that Jesus is giving to the church. Before we get specifically into our first message this morning, I want to take just a few minutes and kind of lay a foundation for us, kind of get some groundwork for us to understand what's going on here. Now, the author of our text is a guy by the name of John. He is most likely the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, referred to as the beloved disciple of Jesus. And John has found himself on the island of Patmos. And he is there, we believe, because he has been banished, he has been exiled, probably because of his work uh, of teaching the gospel and working with the church. Now, we often picture the island of Patmos. If you're, if you're like me, I remember I had a little kid's Bible when I was very little, and the picture of John on the island of Patmos was this desolate, horrible place. I'm pretty sure there were some chains involved, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Patmos was actually a pretty nice place, still is today. Uh, on the island at the time when John would have been there, there would have been some religious features. There would have been some athletic features. They actually had a gymnasium there, not like a Y or anything like that. Well, but, and, and there were some, some, some uh, or industrial uh, features there as well. So there were other people on this island, and a very beautiful island. 
So the, all these things would have been happening. So while John was definitely exiled, he was definitely banished, probably in some sort of a prisoner commune of some sort. He wasn't just alone, chained up to a rock, hoping that he was going to die. Um, so, but this is where John is. John, chapter 1 of Revelation tells us that while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, that the Spirit of God spoke to him. And it instructed him to write down what he was going to hear. And he was to send this to these seven churches. And so John turns to, to see the voice that was speaking to him. And this is what he writes in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read here first, starting with verse 12. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a, a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The, then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now and what will take place later? The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's important for us, before we get into this first message, to understand this picture that John has painted for us, because it's going to come back when he begins to talk to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2. So we see here just kind of an artist's representation of what John's talking about in the Scripture there. And Jesus himself said this. He goes, the seven lampstands that we see surrounding him, those seven lampstands, they represent the church. The seven stars that Jesus holds in his hands right here represent the angels of those seven churches. And now what Jesus means by the angels of those seven churches is the collective spirit of the church. This is not meant to be a reference to an angelic heavenly being that we might think of when we see the word angel, what we would normally, what we would think of when we hear that word. This means the collective spirit of the church. Uh, uh, there's a great Nazarene theologian, pastor, professor, his name is Scott Daniels, and he explains it like this. He says, churches have corporate personalities or systemic, is what that should say, spirits, angels, that are formed out of the mixture of all of their parts, both personal and cultural. And that corporate identity takes on a life of its own and shapes attitude and spiritual climate and the future trajectory of the church. So when Jesus says he's speaking to the angels of the church, what he is saying is, is he's speaking to the spirit, the attitude, the mentality of that church. And this is what he says in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them false. You have preserved and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. (laughs) Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, every sermon that we will look at over the coming weeks will have some similar features. In each one, Jesus begins first by identifying himself. He he tells them what they're doing right. He tells them what they're doing wrong. He tells them how they can fix it. And he tells them what will happen if they do or do not fix it. It's pretty straightforward what he does in these messages. Great job here. Here's the problem. Here's what you need to do. And if you do or if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Now, I'm not making light of it. Let's not make light of it, but this is, this is certainly not my intent. But what I want us to see is that what we're going to see in these seven from messages from Jesus is not cryptic. <laughs> it's not some grand mystery. It's not incredibly difficult to understand. It's not apocalyptic. The message that Jesus is giving to each of these churches was certainly for them, but it is also for us. And you may say, well, why, Pastor? Because the things that Jesus is talking about are still happening today. These are still issues that plague the church today. So let's look at what Jesus says. First, he identifies himself. He says he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now remember, the seven stars represent the seven churches and the seven golden lampstands. They also represent the seven churches, and Jesus is showing us something incredibly important here. Number one, he is in control. That's the first thing he's showing him. He has the authority. He has the ultimate power. He holds the spirits of the churches in his hands. Now, there's another meaning for us, too, that would have been very significant for John's readers. You see, on the Roman coin, on one side of that coin, they would have the picture of the emperor who was ever ruling at that particular time. And on the other side of that coin would be this image right here. You'd have the image of the moon and count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stars. And so this picture that Jesus is creating where he is holding the seven stars, he is reminding the people who would be reading the letter that John is writing, I am in control, not Rome. I hold Rome in my hand. I hold that authority and that power in my hand. The other thing he's telling us in this picture is that he is present. 
Remember, we saw Jesus among the lampstands. He's walking among the lampstands. The picture for us there is that Jesus is present and alive and walking and moving among the churches. I just want to pause here for just a moment and consider what that meant to then and what it still means today. Jesus is aware. I know we know, I know that. I know that Jesus is aware, but... but and it's going to become really evident here in just a moment when we look at what, everything that he had to say. But Jesus is aware. He knows what's happening in this church. He knows what's happening in your, in your Bible study and, and in your small group and in the conversations that you had before service and in the conversations you'll have after service. He knows what's happening in your life. His presence is, is certainly real, and it's very much available, but it's not just a warm and fuzzy thing for us. You see, I think a lot of times we go, oh, Jesus is present. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Hmm. And we get this warm and fuzzy because we think Jesus is here, Jesus is present. And that's true. But on the flip side of it, sometimes we need to go, oh, Jesus is here. I heard this great story from Dick Swinnerman the other day. Many of you know Ann Swinnerman, longtime member of our church. She passed away recently, and we did her funeral this last week, and Dick was sharing a story with me, and, and he was talking about how his mom and his dad used to love television, and they used to love sh watch shows together, but they in particular liked things like Andy Griffith and uh, the Beverly Hillbillies and, um, and Gunsmoke, I think, were the three that he mentioned. And he said, my mom would always tell me, she would say, you want to make sure that you're watching something good when Jesus comes back. You guys, Jesus is here. <laughs> he is present. And he is walking among the lampstands that is the church. So that means he's walking in your life and in every circumstance that you're facing. The next Jesus says, here's what you're doing right. He says, um, you work hard and you're really patient. That's great. Way to go. You need to work hard and you need to be patient. He goes, you, you don't put up with evil. You, you can't stand the wickedness. You, you're not putting up with it. You're, you're fighting against it. That's great. Good job. I want you to do that. He says, you're testing these, these people that come in and find out who are the false ones, who are the false apostles, and you're weeding them out. That's great. I want you to do that. You have endured a lot of difficulty and put up with a lot of stuff. That's great. I'm so glad you're doing that. You haven't given up. You have had endurance. You have had impatience. You have stayed at your task. And oh, by the way, you also hate the Nicolaitans, which I do too. It begs the question, what were the Nicolaitans doing? I mean, if he commends them for hating them, and he says, by the way, I do too, what were they doing? Well, we don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't give us any clear indication other than that they were a group of people that was within the church, and what they were doing was compromising the commands of God. They were compromising God's standard, and they were engaging in something that Jesus had forbidden. It's also important for us to note here that what Jesus was applauding, what Jesus was saying kudos, was not their hate of the Nicolaitans. Hear me. This is important for us. 
He wasn't saying, I'm so glad you hate the Nicolaitans. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing. This is very much like the often used but rarely practiced correct idea of saying that we should hate the sin and love the sinner. We're really good at saying it, really bad at doing it. So Jesus says, look, you're doing all these things, great, great work, that's what you need to be doing. Let me make it a little more relatable for us. It would be like Jesus coming to New Philadelphia Nazarene. He takes a look around, you know, walks around the facilities, attends some small groups, goes to Bible studies, sits in a service. Maybe he looks at our financial books and he says, man, you guys, you guys are good Christians. Yeah, you're also really good Nazarenes. Paying your budgets and you're doing all the things that we're supposed to do. You're doing all the right, it's just great, right? We hear that, we go, thanks Jesus. I just gotta think that if we just stuck to the things that, were, that they were doing right there in Ephesus, it's not really a very bad report, right? I mean, that's pretty good. They're doing good. They're doing all the right things. They were fierce defenders of what we would call today orthodoxy. They, they basically were, were fierce defenders of the doctrine, and they were fierce defenders of the rules. And they didn't give up in their fight. They stood for what was right and they defended the truth of God and they weeded out everything that had no place in that picture. And Jesus says, good on you. But then Jesus says, here's what you're doing wrong. You abandoned your first love. Now some would mistakenly suggest that what Jesus is saying here is they have stopped loving God, but that really doesn't make sense when we consider everything he just told them they were doing right. Because everything they were doing right are a reflection of a relationship committed to God. You know, they're, they're trying to obey all of God's rules, and they're trying to, to live according to the doctrine, and they're trying to have lives that are full of, that are orthodox lives. You know, the first love that Jesus is talking about here is not their love of him, it's not their love of God. He's talking about their love for one another. Their love for others. You see, where they had failed was in their care, and their love, and their support of one another. And here's how we know this. Well, we can start with the author, John, remember? John's the author of the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and it is the only gospel where we hear Jesus say this. A new command I give you. (laughs) Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now look at another thing that John wrote. This comes from 1 John chapter four. It says this, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Did we catch, do you catch that? Whoever does not love their brother and sister who's right here in front of your face that you're seeing and that you're talking to and that you're dealing with, how on earth can you love God who you have not seen? We see it again in 2 John and also in 3 John. 
We might look at this and we might say, now wait a minute, okay, what, what, what is wrong with the church in Ephesus working so hard to protect what is right? Well, nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, good job. Except for the fact that sometimes too much of a good thing can actually become a bad thing. And in this case, the good thing pushed out what Jesus said was the most important thing. So how do we fix it? Well, Jesus says three things. First of all, he tells them, you have to repent. I'm sorry, he says, you tell them you have to remember. (laughs) Remember. Remember how you used to be? Remember how you used to live? Remember how you used to love? I want you to just pause and just think for a minute. She says, do you remember where you used to be? How far you have fallen, he says. How far you have come from where you used to be, from where you need to be. I want you to remember that. And then I want you to repent. And to repent means to do a 180, means to stop what you're doing. Stop not loving one another and start loving one another. And do. Do what I'm telling you to do. Do what you did before. It's not rocket science. It's not a mystery. Do what you did before. He says, if you fail to do this, I will remove your lampstand. Which simply means that the church will die. Over the years, I've seen a lot of churches close their doors. You know what I have never seen, though? I have never seen a church that was actively engaged in the work of love toward one another and toward their neighbors close their doors, not once. I have never seen it. I have seen churches that refuse to change their ways, close their doors, I've seen churches that took such a hard stance against everything that they deemed to be wrong, and they fought that from tooth and nail, close their doors. I have seen churches that were Nazarene, churches that were Baptist, churches that were Lutheran, any name you want to put on it, I have seen them die. But I have never seen a church so caught up in their love for the world close their doors. I've never seen it. Jesus says, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You're going to die. But if you do, well, (laughs) then I'm going to give you victory, right? You're going to be victorious. You will be a victorious church. I love this. See, the word here for victorious is a Greek verb in the form of the word Nike. Have you ever heard this word before? Nike, I should have worn some this morning. Just like the shoes. That's why Nike chose that name. It means victorious. It's all about winning. It's all about uh, overcoming things. Now, some years ago, you may also remember that Nike adopted a tagline. Anybody remember what that tagline was? Just do it. Now, we don't read this in Revelation, so this is extra biblical. But I just feel like there is at least an inkling of the idea that Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, 
Just do it. Remember where you came from. Repent from how you're behaving and do what I've told you to do. Just do it. Now, at this point this morning, there are some of you who are incredibly disappointed because you, were, you heard I was going to be preaching from the book of Revelation, so you're all geared up to hear when Jesus was coming back. Or you couldn't wait to hear how I was going to interpret uh, this incredible book of the Bible. So this is not an end times teaching. Um, Do I believe we're in the end times? Yes. Do I think that there are signs that we can point to that indicate we are closer than we've ever been before? Not necessarily. Because many of the signs that have been interpreted and reinterpreted over and over again, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and global unrest, do a little bit of work and discover that this has been happening over the course of history. We've been in the end times since Jesus left. Yes, Jesus is coming back. And that is the basket that I choose to have all of my eggs in. Okay? Everybody clear on that visual? Here's my basket. Jesus is coming back. Eggs. (laughs) But here's something that I can point to and I can say is a good indicator that Jesus is coming back soon. When I read what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Yeah? There there are a lot of voices out there. Been around actually for, for decades at least, maybe longer than that. False false prophets who have been saying things repeatedly, who have really big platforms and nice flashy television shows and radio programs and whatnot, and they're speaking this stuff and people are are just eating it up and consuming it and it's lies. But that's not what I want to point to. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Just to be clear, Jesus is talking about, you'll know the time is coming soon when the love of most will grow cold. Does any of that sound familiar? (laughs) I'm not, again, I'm not referring so much to the false prophets and the increase of wickedness, although those are 100%, but the last thing that he says there, many years later, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, hey, you're doing a great job weeding out those false prophets. You're doing a great job making sure the truth gets taught, and all that's great, it's very important, but that's not the only danger. See, the other danger is this, people stop loving other people. I will tell you this, in ways that I have never seen in all my life, and I realize that I'm not that old, but in ways that I have never seen in all my life, I see people today in the church and outside of the church not loving one another. We must be careful not to allow our orthodoxy, 
our doctrine, the truth we hold up, and the te- that we teach and preach and protect, we cannot allow our orthodoxy to be emphasized at the expense of our love for others. Jesus said it himself when asked, what was the most important command? We all know this, right? Now, he could have said, not to have any other gods before me. Right? He could have said that. that would have been, that's a pretty important command, right? I mean, that's, that's one of God's commands. You are to have no other gods before me. He was asked, what's the most important command? That could have been his answer, or it could have been, hey, you are not to murder. That's fairly important. We should not kill other people. He, he could have said, you need to honor your father and your mother. I mean, all these things are, they're important. They are a part of our orthodoxy. They're a part of the truth that we want to make sure we protect. All of those things are important, but that is not at all his answer. His answer was much different. He said, you need to love God with everything that you have. All of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When he says the second is like it, he's saying, like, this is love God, this is love your neighbor. <laughs> They're right there together. They're both so incredibly important for the life that you're going to live. Yeah, you need to make sure you have no other gods before me. Please don't kill anybody. You need to honor your father and your mother. But man, love me and just love people. Now check this out. All that other stuff hangs on those two commandments. That's what this means. All the law and all the prophets, it hangs. Some, some translations say that it hinges on those two commandments. What that means is, is that on the commandment to love God and to love people rests everything else. You know what that means? You start with those two things. You start with your love for God. You start with your love for people. And then everything else is like, it's just hanging off of it like a a wind chime. Just happening. It becomes a part of your life. It becomes a beautiful melody that is your life fully surrendered and committed to God. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing on loving people? Before you answer that, let me throw in some additional thoughts that might be a little bit more appropriate, maybe more timely for us today, such as, how are you doing at loving people who got the vaccine? How are you doing at loving people who did not get the vaccine? How are you doing at loving people who wear a mask? Or don't? How are you doing at loving your neighbor who's living with his girlfriend? Wait. How are you doing at loving your neighbor who's living with her girlfriend? How are you doing at loving those in your church that voted Republican? Or voted Democrat? or didn't vote at all. (gasps) How are you doing at loving those in your church who don't like the music? Or do love the music? How are you doing at loving people with the words that you use in your conversation? Is your tone condemning? Are you full of judgment? Do you disapprove of all of their decisions or some of their decisions and make sure to let them know? 
You see, if I simply asked you all, how are you doing this morning at loving people, most of you would probably say, yeah, I mean, I do pretty good. I'm pretty good at loving people. And perhaps you are. But I can tell you that each one of the things that I listed off, they're not just real. I could probably tell a story about each one, and it would involve many of you in this room. I don't know. I suppose in some ways this is very much an end times message because I do believe that Jesus is coming back soon. And when I look at the cut and dry things that Jesus indicated would be important for us to be watching for, I see those things happening. Like the love of many growing cold. I'll tell you what else I see. I see the enemy of our souls working ferociously. Ferociously to make sure that our love grows cold as division and dissension are being stirred up in our communities and in our churches and in our families. And much of it is caused by our battle for what we have decided is truth, whether it be your own individual truth whether it be the truth that we advocate for as the church, we have allowed our fierce protection of orthodoxy orthodoxy, to become what destroys our love. So let me ask you again, how are you doing on loving people? Some years ago, a friend of mine began posting a scripture verse on social media all the time. I would see it as a comment on other people's posts. It would be at the end of her posts. It would, and for the longest time, I wasn't making the connection, I, partially because the scripture verse that she was posting was a translation that I was unfamiliar with. But this is what she would post. She would say, are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the Spirit blowing through the churches. Or you could read it like this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Do I believe Jesus is coming soon? Yes, (laughs) I do. Do I believe that the message that Jesus had for the church in Ephesus is a message for us today? Most certainly. Do I believe that we need to be listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in these uncertain days? Absolutely. We must be listening. And the Spirit is telling the angel of the church, the collective spirit of the church, you must leave room for love. Yes, we must guard truth. We must teach it. We must preach it. We must live it. But church, we must never, we must never let our focus become such that our emphasis on truth eliminates our space for love. Remember, Jesus said, love God with all you are. Love people with all you are. Everything else, it hinges on this. That means that truth, that, that orthodoxy, it all hinges on whether or not we are able to love first 
and most. For some of us this morning, that means changing how we handle things how we handle ourselves. For some of us that are here this morning who have spent so much of our lives being fierce defenders of truth, these are hard things to hear. But we need to hear them nonetheless. When we look back at the ministry of Jesus, he was a a game changer. He really rocked (laughs) the religious world. You should read it. It's good stories. I mean, Jesus just... He came in with these ideas, with these expectations, with these requirements. And I mean, it was, it was, he was bringing something into this religious system that was, that was really stretching things, was making people uncomfortable. It was making it harder for them. In fact, at one point, Jesus tells this great story, and he talks about, he talks about this idea that you cannot pour a new wine into an old wine skin. Do you know Why? Because as that new wine begins to process and ferment and things happen, it begins to stretch. And if it's an old wineskin, it'll just burst it. It'll just destroy the, the old wineskin. And so Jesus says, you have to have, you have, to have a new wineskin. And then you can begin to pour that new wine, that new wine into that new wineskin. You know what Jesus was telling him at that point? He's saying, listen, guys, <laughs> what you've been doing has got to change the way you've been behaving, the way you've been acting, maybe the way you've been treating one, it's got to change. You know why? Because I'm pouring a new wine in here. I know I'm rocking your religious world just a little bit, Jesus says, but this new wine, this is what it's going to be. This is what it looks like for you to follow me. This is what it looks like for you to be obedient to me. So if you try to take everything that I'm bringing to you and put it into who you used to be, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You gotta have a new wineskin. For some of us today, if we're gonna love well and love first, it's time for a new wineskin. Because this is this is new wine kind of stuff. It's different. Perhaps it's not how we've lived our lives. Even as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been great rule followers. Man. We've been great truth tellers. We have crusaded for righteousness. And Jesus says, "I, I want you to focus on loving first. So as we close and we respond together this morning, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to ask you, do you have ears? Do you have ears? Who has ears? Okay, good. Listen. Listen to the Spirit. He's speaking to the churches. He's speaking to you. And as we sing, as we listen to the Spirit of God speak to our hearts and to our lives, I'm going to invite you to come to these altars. Why? Because this, for us, in our tradition, is a place of surrender. It's a place of refreshing. It's a great place to lay down your old wineskin, by the way and put on the new wineskin and to accept what God has for you. It's a place for us to remember. (laughs) Remember our first love. See how far you have fallen. Remember your first love. It's a great place to repent and to turn from who you are and what you've been doing. And it's a great place to make the decision that you're just gonna do it.
you can experience the victory that God has for you. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, you have given us ears to hear. You've given us eyes to see. Lord, I pray that as we respond this morning, we would do so out of a a desire to receive what you have for us, a desire to be made new, a desire to be as you have called us to be, a people of great love who, yes, do guard truth and teach truth and preach truth and live truth, but we lead with love. Help us now, Father, as we respond. I pray we would remain sensitive to your spirit in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?